you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 21, verses 23 to 32. Again, that's Matthew 21, 23 to 32. Uh, I don't know if you realize it or not, but we're soon going to be coming up on a pretty significant anniversary. Uh, Today, of course, is June 19th, 2016. A little later this year, we'll celebrate the beginning of the Protestant Reformation on on October 31st, 1517. That's the date that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses protesting Roman Catholic abuses to the church door at Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517. So this year marks 499 years since the birth of the Reformation. That means that next year, We'll celebrate the Reformation's 500th anniversary. That's huge. 500 years since the birth of the Reformation. 500 years since the birth of a movement that not only restored the doctrines of grace to the church, but really which even revolutionized Western society as a result. It should be an exciting time in the church, as I think we'll see the doctrines of the Reformation, doctrines which really articulate the core of the gospel message, these doctrines are going to be brought increasingly to the fore in the church as people discuss the impact of Martin Luther and the Reformers in retrospect. In a sense, it's already begun. Uh, The theme of this past year's Together uh, Together for the Gospel Conference, for instance, was We Are Protestant. And its message is focused on both the impact of the Reformation uh, on today, as well as the need to continue the work of the Reformers in the church today. This is the kind of thing that you can probably expect in the coming months as the Reformation nears its 500th anniversary. There's going to be an increased focus in the doctrines of the Reformation and their impact on the church and society at large today. And of course, at the very heart of this discussion will be an evaluation of the central teaching of the Reformation, which is the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the core teaching of the Reformation. Salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ and not by the works of the law. That's the question that Martin Luther brought to the fore when he nailed those theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Is salvation accomplished solely through faith in Christ? Or is it achieved through some combination of Christ plus works? Some combination of grace plus obedience? Grace plus effort? Catholic doctrine taught it was the latter. Luther contended it was the former, that justification occurs by faith. Luther would later state that uh, when he had discovered or rediscovered this doctrine while pondering Romans 1.17, where Paul writes, For in it, that is, in the gospel, for in it, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the passage that he was wrestling over as he saw this doctrine. He would later write, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that, quote, the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Uh, Basically, Luther just couldn't get past this statement, the just shall live by faith, because he thought that the just in that statement were those who acted justly, who lived righteously. They were the ones who would live by their faith. Basically, he thought that the passage said that moral people go to heaven. And as long as Luther read that passage this way, he could find no comfort in it. Because as he read it in that, in light of God's perfect holiness... In justice, he couldn't see how anyone could qualify for eternal life. The standard was too high. 
God's righteousness was too perfect, His justice too exacting for anyone to pass the test and meet His standards. But then, as Luther began to reflect on the passage more and more, he began to realize that the, that the just here are not those who are just. It's not those who are already righteous by virtue of their obedience, but rather it is those who are declared just, declared righteous by virtue of their faith in Christ. The person believes in Christ, and then in that moment, God transfers all His righteousness to them through their faith, with the result that they are now considered just, righteous, in God's sight. Justification, he realized, comes by faith. Luther continues, stating that after he realized this, quote, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. I think probably all of us have had an experience like this when we first realized the beauty of this truth. I can still actually remember sitting in the back of the Baptist church in Union Grove, Wisconsin, burdened by the weight of my sin and the fear of God's wrath, only to hear the pastor then explain how if I only believed in Christ, then the penalty of that sin would be considered paid. That God would accept me as righteous in His sight, and though I deserved hell, I could instead go to heaven. I tell you, in that moment, it it literally felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Tears of joy came streaming down my face. I think we all have had experience like this or something like that when we first came to believe this relief that comes once we realize that justification occurs by faith. It's safe to say that there's no truth, no truth that is more precious to the Christian than this one. That eternal life, salvation is received through faith. Because without this truth, there is no hope for salvation. This concept really is the gospel. It's the very core of our faith. In fact, it's fair to say that without it, Christianity is really no different than every other world religion, where man attempts to earn God's favor and acceptance through his own merits. Jesus would be nothing more than just another moral teacher, and His teaching would be just another religious system ultimately filled with uncertainty and despair as we all wondered, am I good enough? There's no no truth more precious to the Christian than the doctrine that Luther fought for during the Reformation, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. But is it true? Sure, we cherish this thought. We love this thought. But is it true? Can salvation really occur simply through faith alone? Is faith enough? The Roman Catholic Church says no. They called Martin Luther a heretic. They said Jesus' sacrifice certainly helps us. It aids us in our salvation. But make no mistake, the scripture is clear that it is the doer of the law that goes to heaven, not the hearer. Salvation, therefore must be a combination of Christ's sacrifice plus our work. So if you want to go to heaven, then you better get busy. You better get obeying. Because only the righteous are getting in. Again, that's, in a nutshell, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And to their defense, there are some passages that seem to lean this way. For example, Matthew 7, 21-23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That seems pretty clear. Jesus says that it's not enough merely to claim relationship with Him. He says that on the day of judgment, there will be many who claim to know Him but He will reject them. And why will He reject them? He rejects them on the basis of their obedience. He says, depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. 
That seems to point to the idea that faith is not enough. That salvation occurs through some combination of faith plus works. This can seem like a troubling passage for those who believe that faith alone is is sufficient for salvation. Even more troubling is James 2, 18-26, where James, the Lord's own brother, writes, But some will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? On the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I mean, what do you do with that passage? Right? James just flat out says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. How do you answer that? You know what Luther said? Do you know how he answered? When confronted with that passage, he called James an epistle of straw. He said that in comparison with books like the Gospel of John and and Paul's epistles, it had in it, quote, nothing of the evangelical kind. He practically rejected the book of James as canonical. Now, clearly we don't believe that. We accept the canonicity of James. But it seems to indicate that salvation occurs by one's works. So what do you do with a passage like that? Yes, salvation by grace through faith is a cherished doctrine. But is it scriptural? Does the Bible actually teach that faith is enough? Our passage for this morning is Matthew 21. 23 to 32. And if you were to read this passage by itself, you might suppose that this is one of those trouble passages that seems to indicate that faith is not enough. That salvation is merely a product of our obedience. You'll see here in a minute, Jesus makes a very strong link in this passage between obedience and salvation. So what's he doing here? What's he driving at? Is salvation by grace alone through faith alone? Or is Jesus saying that obedience is in some way required for salvation? That's the question I want to tackle this morning as we explore the meaning of this passage together. Let's go ahead and start by reading the passage. Matthew 21, uh, 23 to 32. It's still Tuesday of Passion Week. The crowds welcomed Jesus as the promised Davidic king as he rode into Jerusalem on Sunday. On Monday, he cleansed the temple and rebuked Israel for the hypocritical worship. It's now Tuesday. Earlier in the morning on the way into Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples passed by a fig tree that he had cursed on Monday morning. The cursing of that fig tree symbolized the removal of blessing that Israel was about to experience as a result of their unbelief. Now Jesus enters back into Jerusalem. He goes back to the temple the day after cleansing it. And Matthew writes this, And when he entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I, will also, I, will ask, uh, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
will we'll go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Today's passage can be broken down into two basic parts. First, there is a challenge to Jesus' authority. And then second, Jesus responds to this challenge with the parable of the two sons. For a few weeks now, we've been watching the tension in Jesus' ministry begin to rapidly escalate. Uh, This really began back in Jericho when Jesus healed the two blind men on his way up to Jerusalem. Up to that point in his ministry, Jesus spoke somewhat cryptically about his Davidic identity. He wouldn't just come right out and say that he was the the promised Messiah. He would only hint at it. And the reason was because Jesus knew that once his identity was out, his mission and message would be misunderstood. The people would view him as a purely political Messiah, which he was not. This, of course, would then threaten the power of the religious and secular authorities in Israel, and so they would, in turn, put Jesus to death. Jesus didn't want this to happen right away. He wanted to establish a collection of witnesses to carry on his mission and his message after his death, before he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. So for most of his ministry, Jesus would only hint at his Davidic authority without revealing it plainly and openly. Of course, that all changed with the healing of the two blind men outside of Jericho. The healing of the blind was a specifically Davidic miracle that pointed to the spiritual restoration that the Messiah would bring when he came to Israel. As Jesus departs Jericho to go up to Jerusalem, these two blind men cry out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And Jesus, in the presence of all these thousands of Galilean pilgrims streaming up to Jerusalem for the Passover, he heals these men. He discloses his Davidic Davidic identity with the public healing of the blind. Pandemonium ensues. Up to this point, the people had not believed Jesus to be anything more than a prophet. But by the time he enters into Jerusalem on Sunday, on the Sunday before Passover, you have these throngs of people who are welcoming him to the shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And right away, this means trouble. Again, one of the reasons why Jesus didn't reveal his Davidic identity before was because he knew it would be misunderstood. He knew that the people would reject a purely political Messiah. Or expect a purely political Messiah. And he knew that the religious and secular leaders would feel threatened by that prospect and reject him, put him to death. Well, that's how Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem. He's welcomed as the returning king. The people are celebrating because they think Jesus is about to enter into judgment against the nations and exalt His people Israel. Jesus, though, doesn't intend to do this. He tries to show the people this by entering into Jerusalem on a donkey as a sign of weakness and humility. He's not coming as a conquering king. And then when He enters into Jerusalem, He goes straight to the temple in order to explain why. There he cleanses the temple, he turns over the tables of the money changers, and he chases out those buying and selling sacrifices, all while declaring, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. A robber's den, you'll you'll remember, is where criminals go for refuge after committing a crime. Basically, Jesus accuses Israel of hypocritical worship, of honoring God with their lips and their sacrifices, while failing to actually repent of their sins. He even threatens judgment on them by referencing Jeremiah 7, where God promised to destroy the temple if Israel did not repent of their sins. This is ultimately why Jesus is not coming to conquer. Israel has not repented of their sins. Jesus has preached in Israel for three and a half years, telling them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist even preceded him, preaching the exact same message. And yet, in all of this time, Israel has not responded. They're still the same as they've always been. If you want to know why Israel has failed to respond, it ultimately comes down to the religious leaders that we see emerge in this passage. We're going to see Jesus spell this point out quite explicitly in the coming chapters. But it's already been evident throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Probably the best example occurs in Matthew 12, where just as the people are starting to connect the dots and ask themselves, can this be the Son of David? The religious leaders are right there to swoop in and say, it's only by Satan that Jesus can cast out demons. This was the root of Israel's problems. They're religious leaders. 
Their leaders were so blinded by their self-righteous religion, they were so arrogant and proud in their interpretation of the Scripture that they couldn't understand what John and Jesus were asking for when they called for repentance. They observed Jesus' approach to things like Sabbath, and it looked to them like Jesus was trying to lower God's standard. Now, as Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount, this wasn't true. He wasn't attempting to lower God's standard. If anything, He was raising it. He was calling on Israel to abandon their man-made traditions that they used to manipulate God's intent in the law and to repent by abandoning mere religious performance in exchange for genuine and sincere worship of God from the heart. The religious leaders rejected this interpretation of the law. They refused to be educated by some no-name country rabbi. And so they labeled Jesus a false teacher. They told the people that he was a deceiver, a liar. They told the people that he had been empowered by Satan to come and lead them astray. For a while it worked. But by the time Jesus enters into Jerusalem, followed by two blind men who had been healed, as witnesses to his Davidic authority, by the time he cleanses the temple with the zeal of David, and then stands there in the temple of the Lord, healing the blind and the lame in plain sight, by then, who he is is so obvious that the children are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. So over the past few weeks, the tension has been building. And by the time we get to Tuesday, it's at a climax. The religious leaders at this point are in full-on crisis mode. The cleansing of the temple on Monday is really the height of Jesus' power. Not only is Jesus so popular at this point that the the religious leaders can do nothing more than beg Him to silence the children. But He's standing there in the temple during the most popular religious festival of the year, and he's not only preaching the exact same message that has been rejected thoroughly throughout his ministry, but he's verifying that message with an awesome and unquestioned display of power and authority. So the religious leaders are panicked. They're panicked because they realize that the whole nation is about to run after him. If they don't act now, if they don't do something to silence him now, then the whole nation is going to run after him. The whole nation is going to, in their mind, be misled by this imposter. And Rome will come in and take away their place and their nation. So they're scared. They're desperate. They need to do something about Jesus. But they can't just go right out and arrest him. He's too popular right now. He's too powerful. The crowds at this point love him. That's why they didn't stop him when he cleansed the temple. They were not in the position politically to seize him and silence him. They could only ask him to silence himself. So they do the only thing they can do at this point. They challenge him. They challenge him to a debate. Jesus enters back into the temple on Tuesday. He goes back into the public square, back into the center of Israel's worship. And waiting for him there is a coalition of the unlikeliest group of allies you could possibly imagine. There are scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, chief priests, members of the Sanhedrin, basically leaders from every possible section of Israel. You have religious and secular, conservative and liberal. They're gathered together to collectively bring down this movement before it goes any further by publicly discrediting the man at the head of it all, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what's happening on Tuesday. Leaders from every sphere of influence are gathered together in the temple in an attempt to bring Jesus down. FYI, uh, it's not going to work. They're going to go toe-to-toe with Jesus in in a debate. They're going to try to win an argument over Scripture with the Son of God. Uh, That's not a particularly wise proposition. Uh, This is not going to end well for them. Jesus is about to verbally spank them and send them to bed without their supper. Uh, That's the equivalent of what's going to happen here. It's not even close. 
They're going to ambush Jesus, and Jesus is going to so thoroughly expose their ignorance and sin with every question they ask that by the end, the only recourse they're going to have is to arrest him under cover of darkness, accuse him falsely, and then blackmail the sitting Roman prefect into executing him. So this is what happens on Tuesday. Jesus comes back into the temple that he cleansed only a day earlier. The religious leaders are there waiting for him. And they start with this opening question, verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They begin with a question about authority. Jesus Jesus had not only accepted the crowd's praises, he's not only accepted their proclamations of his messiahship, but he's even had the nerve to cleanse the very temple that the chief priests and elders were responsible for. So what they want to know is, where are you getting this authority from? Where do you get the authority to do these things? As far as they know, Jesus doesn't possess the kind of lineage to claim the Davidic throne. He comes from Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And not only that, but he has received no formal education. He certainly wasn't educated by any of them, and yet he's making authoritative proclamations about the law. He's coming into the temple and criticizing the nation for the way it's conducting its worship. So just who does Jesus think he is? How is this no-name Galilean country preacher going to come in and tell them how they ought to live, how they ought to interpret the law, what gives him the right? They ask this question in two parts. First, they uh, ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Basically, they want to know the type of authority that Jesus is operating under. And then second, they want to know where he got that authority. They say, and who gave you this authority? They think that Jesus can only answer one of two ways. Either Jesus says... That he's operating by his own authority, in which case they can discredit him by saying that he testifies about himself and he's not to be believed. Or he says that he's operating by God's authority, in which which case they can accuse him of blasphemy. Those are the only two answers that they think Jesus can give. So basically, they think they have him trapped. Now, it should be apparent that this is a ridiculous question. By what authority does Jesus do these things, and who gave it to him? Are you kidding me? I mean, what did they think that Jesus was doing in the temple yesterday, right? It's obvious by what authority Jesus does these things. It was so obvious that even the children in the temple could recognize it. He's the son of David. His is a messianic authority. He does these things by virtue of the fact that he is the rightful king of Israel. Even more than that, he's God's chosen one, the Messiah, His suffering servant. That's where Jesus' authority comes from. It comes from God. His is a royal authority that's been granted by God. And it's been verified through the supernatural signs and wonders that He was performing right there in the temple. I mean, think about it. Who else is going to come in God's house, cleanse His temple, and then perform signs and wonders in its midst? Do you think Satan is going to have the power to do that? Obviously not, right? It's eminently apparent that Jesus is operating under the messianic authority that has been granted to him by God. And they already realize this. They know what kind of authority Jesus is claiming. But they want him to come out and say it, to verbalize it himself, so they can attack. Again, the question isn't genuine, it's a trap. So in this whole exchange that's going to continue to take place over the next few chapters, that's the opening volley. Tell us, Jesus, tell us. Tell us all right here in the temple. Where does this authority come from? Jesus immediately returns, serve. He's not backing down, but he's not going to fall into their trap either. Instead, he's going to turn this question about authority on its head so that they are the ones whose credibility is called into question. He says, okay, I'll tell you where my authority comes from, but you have to answer a question for me. Verse 25, the baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Talk to me about the authority of John's baptism, Jesus says, and then we'll talk about where my authority comes from. The implication is obvious. John publicly testified 
to Jesus' authority. In fact, that's actually why John came baptizing. He tells his disciples in John 1, after watching the Spirit descend on Jesus, he says, This is who he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He was the messenger sent ahead of God to prepare the way before him, both by calling the people to repentance and by formally announcing his arrival. You see, the the, the religious leaders want to trap Jesus by saying, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But Jesus is not testifying about himself. Not only do the works that he performs testify about him, that God sent him, but God even sent a prophet before him as a witness to his authority. So Jesus says, you tell me about the source of John's authority, and then we can talk about my authority. Because John's witness will answer this question for them. Jesus doesn't have to explain the source of his authority. John already answered the religious leader's question for him. The religious leaders huddle up to determine how to best answer Jesus' question, and immediately they realize that Jesus has turned this question on its head. They asked a question that was intended to discredit Jesus before the crowds, a question in which they thought there was no right answer. In answering, Jesus has actually flipped the question back on them and placed them on the horns of the very dilemma that they had intended for him. John was an incredibly popular teacher. The people even regarded him as a prophet. And yet they did not accept John's teaching. Most of them were not baptized at his baptism. The people accepted John. The religious leaders were more skeptical. So they now realize there's no right answer that they can give. If they say, well, his baptism was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, Well, then there's your answer about my authority. So why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you repent? And more importantly, why are you questioning my authority? John's already told you all this. But if they say it was only for men, then they're going to lose credibility with the crowds. It's only going to undermine their influence and push the crowds even further into Jesus' corner. Either way, Jesus wins. Either way, Jesus is going to only gain credibility with the crowds not lose it. Talk about a failure of a question. Like, you know how in those old Roadrunner cartoons, like every now and then, Wiley Coyote would set up a trap for the Roadrunner, and then like the Roadrunner would run right through it, and Coyote would go over to check out the trap and then just get trapped himself? That's the equivalent of what just happened here. This first question from the religious leaders, they get caught in their own trap. So realizing their defeat, they give the best possible answer they can give under the circumstances, which is still pretty humiliating. They say, we don't know. We don't know. Again, talk about embarrassing. These guys are the religious leaders of Israel, and when it comes to a figure as prominent and influential as John the Baptist, the best answer they can give about the source of authority in his ministry is, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, you're the teachers of Israel and you can't even determine whether a guy like John is a prophet or a false teacher. Then tell me, what good are you? And on what basis are you going to come and stand in judgment over Jesus' authority, right? Again, this is just humiliating. This is the best answer they can give. And it's almost somehow worse. They still lose face. Why would anyone listen to these men if they can't even weigh in and give an educated opinion on a guy like John? Of course, this is made even worse by the fact that the crowds did regard John as a prophet. We don't know is not a sufficient answer for them. It's better than simply disregarding John. And from the religious leader's perspective, it's better than affirming Jesus. But even so, it's still bad. The people are still going to sour towards the religious leaders because of this answer. So basically, the momentum here has already swung in Jesus' direction. And he knows it. The leaders tried to throw a haymaker, but not only did Jesus elude that punch and throw a strong counter, but they've been knocked off balance. They're dazed and vulnerable. Jesus sees this. 
And he seizes the opportunity to go on the offenses with a flurry of strong, hard hooks to the body. This comes in the form of three parables that eviscerate, eviscerate the religious leaders for their unbelief in light of this answer. That's what's been established in their answer before the crowds. The hardness of their hearts is on display, and it's on display to the degree that even the people can see it. So Jesus launches into this series of parables that rebuke the leaders for their unbelief. These are all effectively gut punches, which are only going to uh, further infuriate the religious leadership. The first of these parables is the parable of the two sons. So the religious leaders have challenged Jesus' authority, but they've only embarrassed themselves in the process. Jesus asks where John's authority comes from. They say, we don't know. Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. Their hardness of heart is now on display before the crowds. And without missing, Jesus goes on the offensive. And he asks them another question. He says, verses 28 to 31, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? That question seems innocent enough. It's pretty simple. There doesn't seem to be any way that a person could get that kind of a question wrong. I mean, obviously, it's the son who actually does the will of his father. You know, what his father asks, he's the one that has obeyed, right? Just because a person says they'll obey doesn't necessarily mean that they actually did it. While it would be better if both sons submitted to the father in both word and action, the better son is ultimately the one who obeys indeed, not merely in word, right? So there doesn't seem to be any way that the religious leaders can get this question wrong. The answer is so obvious. But at the same time, Jesus is simply, has so simply and cleverly outwitted the religious leaders' challenge, I will say at this point, that if you're rooting for them, then at this point you're yelling at your television screen, like, no, don't answer that question, it's a trap. Don't do it, because Jesus is obviously the superior intellect here, right? Even so, the leaders answer, saying, the first, the first son's the obedient one. And they're right. Of course, the one who obeys his father's command. He's ultimately the obedient son, regardless of what he did or didn't say at first. So to their credit, the religious leaders get this one right. But that doesn't mean they're safe. Actually, they've just unwittingly incriminated themselves. Jesus drops the bombshell saying, verses 31 to 32, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The point is that the religious leaders claimed a relationship with God. They claimed to take God's law seriously. They worked very hard at studying and understanding God's law. They publicly affirmed His commands and said that they would obey them and they told others to do the same. But then, as we've seen in Jesus' ministry, they would use technicalities in the law to violate its intent. They would even take their own commandments that they made up and add them on top of the law, and elevate these to a status above the law, so that they wouldn't need to obey it. They would obey in public, but not in secret. In fact, even when they did obey, even then, down in the very innermost part of their being, down in their very heart, they rejected God. And it was evident on this, in, in moments like this display in the temple with the sacrifices. In the words of Isaiah 28, they would obey with their lips, but their hearts were very far from God. In reality, the tax and collectors and prostitutes that responded to John's preaching, they were the exact opposite. They initially rejected God. They pursued a life of wanton sinfulness and rebellion. They publicly and openly rejected God with their way of life to the degree that they were even considered outcasts in their society, rejected by society for their sin. But then when John came telling them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, They listened. They acknowledged their sin with the same degree of openness that they expressed in rejecting God by going out to be baptized by John. 
They essentially accepted the fact that they were sinners in need of God's grace. And then they repented, like actually repented. They weren't playing games with the law. They listened to John's and Jesus' preaching and responded by practicing the kind of righteousness that God actually demanded. So who's the obedient son? It's them. It's the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Again, talk about a punch to the gut. This is a punch to the gut. Understand, these are self-righteous men. These are men who take great pride in the effort they put into obeying God's law. Great pride in their righteousness. And Jesus says to them, the tax collectors and prostitutes are more righteous than you are. They're getting into heaven before you are. That's infuriating just in and of itself. But then add to this fact that this charge would actually resonate with the crowds, most of whom had accepted John's preaching. And this is absolutely devastating. Jesus is is publicly annihilating these men. And the bell hasn't even rung at the end of the first round. He's got two more parables to go before the religious leaders will be able to regroup enough to fire another salvo. We're just getting started. But before we go on, this parable raises a question that I think we need to explore. And that question is, is faith enough? You look at this parable, and on one hand, you almost have to say that the answer to that question is no. I mean, if we're defining faith as an acceptance of God's word, as an approval of God's commands, if we're defining it merely as an affirmation of His truth, then in that sense, we would have to say no faith is not enough. The religious leaders claimed a relationship with God. They publicly affirmed His commands. But in secret, they did not obey them. And Jesus says this is not enough. You're not going to go to heaven just because you pay lip service to God's commands. It's the one who actually does the will of my Father that will go to heaven. It's just like what he said back in chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Guys, that's powerful. That's powerful. In these passages, Jesus is clearly saying, it's the one who obeys who goes to heaven. If you do not obey, then I don't care what you say about the kind of relationship you have with God publicly. I don't care how many Facebook posts you make about your love for God and your concern for His Word. If you do not actually, in the end, obey His commands then you will not go to heaven. I don't care if you walked an aisle, raised a hand, prayed a prayer. I don't care how many sermons you've listened to or how much you go to church and read your Bible. If in the end, all you do is talk, if all you do is declare your intent to obey God without actually obeying His command, then you will not go to heaven. And Jesus isn't the only one who says this. Hebrews 12.14 talks about striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 John 3.6 says that no one who keeps on sinning has seen Him or know Him. 1 John 3.8 says that the one who makes a practice of sinning is actually of the devil. Even Paul. Mr. Justification by grace through faith himself. Even he says in 1 Corinthians 6.9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He even gives a list saying, do not not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Clearly, there's some kind of connection between obedience and salvation. The scripture is just so clear that it is those who will do the will of God who will be saved. So is faith enough. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is it some combination of grace plus works, Christ plus works? Basically, were the Catholics right? I think in order to answer this question, you have to go back and ask yourself, what was the obedience 
that John and Jesus demanded. They called for repentance, right? But what kind of repentance? If you stop to think about it, there's something very strange about what Jesus is saying in this parable. Something that would have been very confusing, if not flat out offensive to the religious leaders. He says that they had not repented. Think about that. He says that they did not obey. He says that the religious leaders did not believe John. And clearly, Jesus means to tie this to John's proclamation of his Messiahship. They didn't believe John when he told them about the Christ. They didn't believe in him in this sense. But there's more to that as well. Jesus speaks of them not believing John when he came to them in the way of righteousness. The parable clearly is about obedience. Jesus isn't saying, just saying, that they didn't believe. He's saying they didn't obey. He's saying they didn't repent at John's preaching. But repent to what? I mean, what do guys, like the scribes and Pharisees, have to repent of? After all, they were incredibly zealous for the law, were they not? That's actually why they had such a hard time figuring out what to do with John. John called them, them, sons of snakes. He told them to repent. And they couldn't understand this. What did they have to repent of? In terms of their actions, they were already there. They kept the law. And yet here in this parable, Jesus says that they were the ones who merely said they would obey. They didn't actually obey. So what's Jesus getting at here? I think you have to find the answer back in the cleansing of the temple, don't you? I mean, that event really served to summarize the problem that Jesus had with Israel's worship. It was the culmination of three years of preaching. You look at that event, and what did Jesus rebuke the people for? I mean, they were bringing their sacrifices, weren't they? In terms of their obedience to the law, they were doing exactly what God told them to do, right? Right? No, they weren't. No, they weren't. After all, the law told them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The law told them to fear God and to see Him as their refuge and protection. But by the way that Israel was bringing these sacrifices, neither of these things were true. They weren't concerned with the purpose of the temple. They weren't coming to experience fellowship with God. They were just there to do their duty, make their sacrifice, and get out. They didn't love God, and they weren't, certainly weren't seeking refuge in Him. They just thought that so long as they did the things that God commanded them to do, He'd protect them. They were seeking refuge in their works, is what they were doing. And this was the thing that John and Jesus told the religious leaders to repent of. You go to the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, and this is the whole point. External righteousness is not enough. God demands worship. He demands faith. Listen, He wants you to come as a spiritual beggar. It's the poor in spirit that are blessed. He wants someone who's broken over their sin, He wants them to come and ask Him to have mercy. Lord, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare Your praise, David says as he confesses his sin in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But this is the one to whom I will look, God says in Isaiah 66 too. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the righteousness that God demands. Not mere action, but humility, dependence, and faith. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is righteousness in God's eyes. Not mere religious performance, but faith. The tax collectors and the prostitutes came to God in this way. They confessed their sins and sought forgiveness through John's baptism. Not the religious leaders, though. They refused to trust God, seeking to be justified by their own works instead. This is what Jesus means when He says that they did not go and do the will of their Father. God demanded that Israel worship Him. The tax collectors refused at first, only to later regret it and repent. The religious leaders said, we will worship you. We will worship you. And then instead, sought righteousness through their own performance rather than by faith. 
In short, they did not repent unto faith. Now, you actually see this in the passage, by the way. Look at this. Think about this. Why don't the religious leaders come right out and say to Jesus, we don't accept John's baptism? It's because they fear the people. For that matter, why didn't they want the people calling Jesus the son of David? John tells us in John 11, the religious leaders conspired together after the resurrection of Lazarus, wringing their hands over Jesus' popularity, and they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They didn't want people calling Jesus Messiah because they thought it would mean punishment by the Romans. Listen, folks, these guys are cowards. These are faithless men. They had no confidence that God would deliver them from the hands of the Gentiles, let alone deliver them from their sin. And so they sought refuge in their own strength, in their own righteousness. This difference in faith would also ultimately prove to be the difference in their actions as well. For example, one of the things that Jesus declared is that God demands mercy and not sacrifice. The tax collectors and prostitutes could respond to this declaration, not only as an expression of their love for God, but also because of their recognition of their own need for mercy and of their unworthiness to receive it. In other words, they could live sacrificially, both because they did not think they deserved anything and because as objects of mercy, they saw the rightness of God's demand for mercy. The religious leaders couldn't see these things. Their pride made them blind to their need. The things that they believed, uh, that they had, they believed they were owed. And And not only this, but they did not see the need for mercy. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, or so they thought. And so, if other people didn't obey, it must be because of their laziness or their ungodliness. If they were suffering, it was obviously their fault. So they had no compassion So when Jesus declared, God desires mercy and not sacrifice, both these groups each responded differently on the basis of their faith. And we could go on and continue to explore why this is so, but the basic point is that there is a connection connection between one's works and one's salvation. Yes, works, in a sense, are essential to salvation. But, and listen to me very closely here, very closely, This is not because works are effective for salvation, but because they are the product of salvation, or more specifically, they are the product of saving faith. Faith is enough for salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. But here's the rub, ladies and gentlemen. Obedience is the fruit of faith. The one who believes obeys. They obey because they trust. This is what James means when he says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He's not saying that a person is saved on the basis of their own merit. He's just saying that faith lives. It's active. It works itself out in a person's life as they actively, willfully, intentionally trust God as demonstrated by obedience to His commands. Now, I think it's important to note that the mere presence of works does not prove the presence of faith. Let me say that again. The mere presence of works does not prove the presence of faith. It's possible to have a kind of works without faith. The religious leaders would be proof enough of this. They produce works without faith, and Jesus Jesus condemned them for it. This was not the righteousness that God was looking for. God was looking for faith. So I think we can establish this point. The mere presence of works does not necessarily prove the presence of faith. However, we can say definitively that the absence of works does prove an absence of faith. The presence of works does not necessarily prove the presence of faith, but the absence of works does prove an absence of faith. This is how Jesus and the apostles can tie salvation to obedience on so many occasions while still claiming that salvation is by grace through faith. Faith inevitably produces works. Yes, faith is enough. It is Christ's merit alone that makes us acceptable to God. And that merit is applied to us when we believe. Salvation is by grace through faith. But the one who believes will also obey. Because obedience is the fruit of faith. This is important. The reason why the second son does not go to heaven 
is not because he does not obey. Not ultimately. It's because he does not believe. It doesn't matter what he says with his lips. His disobedience is a sign of his unbelief. Likewise, the reason why the first son does go to heaven, it's not because he does obey. It's because he believes. Although he rejected his father with his lips, he later repented in his heart and obeyed. That obedience is a sign of his repentance unto faith. It's a sign of his belief. This is how this parable works. And what it points to is the the fact that the faith that saves is the faith that works. Mere mental assent is not enough. It's not enough to merely give a thumbs up to the right doctrines. It's not enough to merely hear good theology and say, I agree with that. The religious leaders could more or less do that. I mean, even demons can more or less do that. It's possible for the ungodly to affirm what is true about God. What they don't do, however, is act on that truth. They do not actively trust the God that that truth proclaims enough to actually respond to His Word. Instead, knowing the truth, they reject it and suppress it, just like what you're seeing here in the temple with this challenge to Jesus' authority. The religious leaders know the truth about Jesus. In a sense, they believe it. You could say that they could believe it in a sense. But at the same time, they hate it. They reject it and push it away. That's obviously not saving faith, just to acknowledge the truth about Jesus. No, saving faith lives. Saving faith demonstrates itself daily as the worship continually seeks refuge in its object, and it is revealed both through the internal joy and hope that it produces in the worshiper and in the external obedience that then follows as the worshiper eagerly submits himself or herself to God's rule over their life. Yes, faith is enough. But true faith obeys. And at this point, I think several questions are raised. Important questions, which unfortunately I don't have time to answer this morning. Normally I'd say, let's look at these questions tonight during our evening discussion, but of course today's Father's Day, and as you know, uh, we won't be having our evening discussion tonight. And these questions are important. I think the questions that are raised by this passage are vital to your Christian life. I tell you, this this passage has actually been weighing pretty heavy on me the past couple of weeks. And in a sense, even the principle behind it, it's been weighing on me heavy for months. It goes before this passage. And it's been weighing on me precisely because of the pastoral concerns that are raised with the questions that come up in this passage. Unfortunately, I think it's very easy to misunderstand the theology surrounding these questions and misapply the principles touched on in this passage and to misapply them to spiritually devastating effect. I don't want you to do that. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. So what I want to do is come back and address these questions in part two of this message next week. In the meantime, brothers and sisters... To sort of prepare yourself for the issues that I'm going to address then, I would encourage you to ask yourself. Ask yourself this question over the coming week. Reflect on this. Which kind of a son or daughter am I? Am I the type that says, Yes, Lord, I will go, only to disobey His command? Or am I the type that actually follows through and does His will when He commands it? This is a very important question. Jesus is not just seeking out those who affirm right doctrine. He seeks out those who actually act on it. So which are you? Reflect on that question. And then as you reflect on that, and as you consider those areas of your life where you do not obey, and folks, every one of us have areas of our life where we do this. As you reflect on those areas of your life where you do not obey, where you do only pay lip service to Christ, start asking yourself this question, why do I not obey? Why do I not do the thing that I say that I'll do. Spend some time reflecting on these questions and then come prepared next week to tackle the issues that are going to arise as you wrestle through these thoughts in part two of our message next week. Until then, let's close by asking God to search our hearts and open our eyes in the coming week. Help, let's ask Him to help us see our hypocrisy and sin, to help us see our rebellion, and then that He would help us to understand what we must do to see this evil in us put to death. 
This is not something that we can do ourselves. Christ must do it for us. So let's turn to the one who opens blind eyes, who unstops deaf ears, who causes the lame to walk and the dumb to speak. Let's turn to Him and ask Him to cleanse us of our sin. Let's pray.